Well, good morning, church. Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open them to the first chapter of Revelation. And this morning, we'll be in verses 4 through 12. Now, as you're turning there, I want to remind you that we were told in the previous verses, 1 through 3, that this book is a prophecy. And by the way, if you wonder the direction that we're going to be going with this book and our study through uh, Revelation, if you go online, you can find the sermon last week, which is uh, an introduction and, and lays out the path and the, the principles that we'll be using to understand the book going forward. But uh, there were a few things I didn't get to, and one of them was, what is a prophecy? We're told that this book is a prophecy. Now, if you were to ask this question to the, the general populace, right, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, people from the street, if 99% of the people that you asked would give an answer, something along the lines of, well, a prophecy is when somebody tells about something that's going to happen sometime in the future. That's what people generally think of when they think of prophecy, right? For Christians, it's a bit clearer. God is the one who is doing it. But what he's doing is telling us something that he is going to do, he will reveal one day in the future. He's going to bring it to pass. But that's not actually what prophecy means in Scripture. That's a, a narrow part of it. Because prophecy in the Bible is simply God communicating to his people. God speaking to his people. People. That's prophecy. So it's not a message primarily about the future, but it's a message from God for His people now. Now, of course, sometimes in Scripture, the Bible does give us prophecies about the future. But the Lord doesn't do this just to let us in on a little secret. He has a purpose behind it. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 32, God commands Moses to teach the Israelites a song about what they will do in the future. So it's a prophetic song. And the song teaches that in the future you will all fall away. Well, why does he teach them this song? Well, it's to warn them. It's to warn them so that they would take faithfulness seriously today so that they would hear this song sing a song about the danger of falling away and they would as they're singing it be thinking I don't want this to be me that's the point of of, of him teaching them the songs it's not just to cross their arms and wait to fall away it's to remind them the danger that they're in if they don't hold steadfast to the faith it's the same thing in Isaiah God promises a Messiah or makes clear some of the promises of the Messiah. And why does he do it? He does it to encourage the people to endure and to, and to keep up hope in the present. Right? A Savior will come. A Messiah is coming. So press on. And so even when prophecy does announce future events, the, the point really isn't just to tell the future. It's meant to affect how God's people live today for their good and for his glory and so this book is a message for us not primarily to tell us about future events 
but to remind us and prepare us and encourage us on how to live and think about today. So, let's read our passage this morning. Revelation 1, 4 through 20. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests, to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion and power forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It is meant to encourage us and to strengthen us. It is a light to our path, Lord, all of it. And I pray that as we work through this book, Lord, that can be very confusing, that you would work, Lord, to make it clear for your people, that they would be encouraged and blessed by it. Lord, this book is meant to be a blessing. Seven times in this book, blessed are those who hear the words that are in it. And so I pray, Lord, that you would bless. I pray, Lord, that you would use it to warn those who don't know you of the perilous danger that they're in. I pray that you would use it to encourage your people to press on and overcome and that we would know that you are with us, Lord, as we see the glories of Christ, as we see the victory of Christ and are reminded, Lord, of what is to come. I pray that you would help me to preach, help us to hear, 
and strengthen your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before we get to the first section of seven sections in this book, there is a little bit more groundwork that I wanted to do last week, but just didn't have time to do. Um, one of those things was to tackle the word soon. You know, what do we do with all of the imminent language in this book? Everything seems to be coming quickly. Well, one of the things that it does is it acts as us for a guidepost in interpreting this book. It helps us to, to make sense of what's, what's happening in that we know that this is a book written for people alive in John's day, right? It's for them as well as it is for us. But I think one thing to consider is that it's even broader than that. This imminent language, this it's coming quickly in the Bible is not limited to the book of Revelation. I think the first thing for us to recognize is this is throughout the New Testament. I mean, consider 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Right? The end of all things is at hand. Or John 2.18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Well, I can assure you, John went on to live a few more hours after he wrote this. It's been the last hour for, uh, for quite a while now, and it's been the end of all things for the last 2,000 years by this point. And so why, why all of this language about the end, the last hour, the imminent return of Christ? Why does the Bible speak about it as if it was always just around the corner? Well, I think one of the reasons is because of how much God has already fulfilled and accomplished in redemption. You think of it like this. When you go back and you read in the Old Testament, there are all kinds of promises you see to be fulfilled. Someone will come and crush the head of the snake. Um, uh, promises given to Abraham. Your seed will bless all the peoples in the world. Or the son of David. Your son will sit on a throne and, that, will, that will never be toppled. There's the promises of the Holy Spirit being sent. Promises of the sacrificial system to be fulfilled. A prophet like uh, Moses to come. The promised and assured rest for God's people. And all of these promises that were given, they're fulfilled in Christ. And all that's really left now is what? It's the ingathering of God's people and the return of Christ. Like the building of the church and the second coming. And that doesn't mean that that's all we have to do is wait for Christ to return while preaching the gospel. But in terms of, uh, we, we're, we're going to do that. But in terms of biblical, redemptive, historical promises, right? Think big events that God said are going to happen. There's really not very many left. If you had a, a checklist of all of the things that God said he was going to do. However many pages that there were, guess what? We're just about at the end of the list with only one, maybe two boxes 
left to be checked. And there isn't much to be done before Jesus comes back. And in that sense, it's going to happen soon. Right? Everything's in place. It's just a matter of time. And so we really are in the last hour or the last age or the last days or the final era, the age of the church before the return of Christ. And since it is that last age with all of these things fulfilled, Jesus really is coming soon. Another thing we'll come up against again and again in this book is that Christ and His people overcome. They overcome every adversary that they face. Or you could say conquer because it's the same word. Overcome, sometimes it's translated overcome, other times it's translated conquer. And Paul says, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Same word. And that's a theme throughout the book. There is a call to persevere and to conquer. But what is it that we overcome? I'm reminded of John's Gospel where Jesus says, I have overcome the world. It's in John 16. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome or I have conquered the world. Now you realize when Jesus says this, He's going to be crucified in the morning. Now that doesn't look like much of a way to conquer anything, does it? Right? To be betrayed, to suffer, and to die. And yet, through that, Christ conquers all the kingdoms of the world. I mean, no one can dispute that. Who is going to say Jesus is not the great conqueror? He's the King of kings and He's the Lord of lords. But listen, He, he didn't do it by military might. It's quite backward. I forget who it was, but they described the kingdom of God as, as the great backward kingdom. Because Christ conquers by laying down His life. And in the New Testament, over and over again, we're called to do the same, to follow in His footsteps by laying down our lives, patiently enduring, and by doing so, conquering and overcoming the world. That's not what we're naturally inclined to do. We're inclined right, to fight or to flight. Right? Run away or stand and fight. We're inclined to resist physically. And I think it's good for the church to be reminded that our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over the present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so we don't conquer physically. We don't conquer culturally. Jesus is our example. And that's not where we start. Now, it's where the church ends up. I mean, certainly in the new heavens and the new earth. But you get there by conquering fears, conquering doubts, conquering the temptations of this world and your own sinful inclinations. Sinful inclinations. You get there by conquering the, the fear of man. Christ says if we're ashamed of Him, He'll be ashamed of us. We get there by conquering ourselves so that we can patiently endure. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in His footsteps. Christ conquered through suffering. We overcome through suffering. I mean, just read the Beatitudes. The meek shall inherit the earth. Or Romans 8. Or Romans 5. Or 1 Peter. Or so many other passages. This is the Christian way. We live by... We are not overwhelmed by the world around us. We're not overwhelmed by its apparent power. 
We live by faith and not by sight. And in our suffering and in our trials, they're not just sharpening us. They're not just sanctifying us or pruning off dead branches. They are leading us down the victorious path of Christ. That's what trials and suffering and challenges do for the believer. They are how we overcome. We rejoice in our sufferings. Count it all joy. So many things. Those are two themes running through the book. Christ is coming soon and God's people overcome. So verse 5. The Lord is introduced as the ruler of the kings of the earth. But notice this is not ruler of the kings of the earth in some future time. He is called the ruler of the kings of the earth in the present when John sees him. Present tense. And what is being told to us is that Jesus reigns. Now, if you're anything like me, you you might come into a bit of a conflict here and you wonder, well, I thought Satan was the god of this age. How can Jesus reign as king when Satan is called the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air? Well, these things aren't difficult to understand. Satan and the kingdoms under his domain are rebellious. Like breakaway, illegitimate juntas claiming authority that they don't have. But Christ is still king over them. It's it's not a a difficult picture. Right? Imagine that in Canada you had the federal government and then in New Brunswick we broke off and we said we're not going to uh, deal with them or support them anymore or whatsoever. We're our own independent country. It doesn't work that way. It would be illegitimate. And even though there would be uh, people living here and authorities working here, it's still legitimately under the authority of the federal government. It's the same thing. Christ has authority over all of the world and everything that Satan rules is rebellious and illegitimate. Christ is the one who rules it all. And he doesn't rule as some, in some distant, unconcerned way. He's with us. That's the very next thing we're told. He's redeemed us and, and loves us. And listen to this. He's freed us from sin. He's loosed us so that it may no longer ensnare us. It's like we were caught in a net and couldn't get out. Well, Christ has cut, you, cut the net and set you free by the power of His blood and made us a kingdom of priests. You read next that He is coming for His church. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. You could say uh, that another way, that He is coming for His church. It's not that one day He's going to come. He's in the process of coming to gather us up. And when He returns, He will judge the living and the dead. That's the message John receives. And what's so striking about this message, what's so striking about the delivery of it, is the spectacular contrast that comes in in verse 9. Listen to how John starts, right? what he says about himself. Verse 9, I, John... Your brother and your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Three things he tells us. One, he is enduring the tribulation. Two, he is in the kingdom. And three, patient endurance is how you get through. You know, there's a lot of talk about the tribulation today, but but I bet if you would go back and ask John... 
You said, John, when's the tribulation? You know what I think he'd answer? I think he'd say, you're in it, brother. And that's not speculation because that's exactly what he says. Your partner, brother and partner in the tribulation. And if you could ask him, well, where's the kingdom? He'd point to you and him and say, right here, partner. Well, that much is clear. John sees the last age as a time of constant tribulation and war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And for the church to endure, it requires patient endurance in Christ. That's not all that John is dealing with. Finish the verse. He was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John's on an island. And this is not some holiday vacation. John was the bishop of Ephesus, pastor of Ephesus. And, uh, you know, it's not he got really uh, burnt out one day and they sent him off to an island vacation. Patmos, a small island off the coast of Asia Minor. It's off of modern-day Turkey. And John was sent there as an exile. And the reason he was exiled was on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So, get, get the picture. Here, here's John. He's an old man at this point. Uh, some say he might have been 90 years old. He got in trouble with the state, the Romans, because he was preaching the Word of God and because he was bearing witness to Jesus Christ. That's why he's in trouble. That's why he says, I'm on the island of Patmos. Why? Because I'm preaching the Word and I'm preaching Christ. I'm not deviating and people didn't like it very much. But the state... The Romans, to show clemency, right? They didn't want to, they didn't think it would be good publicity to feed an old man to the lions. They exile him to die on a small, out-of-the-way, unimportant island. They tell him, you go here, be alone, no more influence, cut off from the church, die on Patmos. That's not the kind of place that inspires great expectations and great ambitions. A rocky island with a small village. And for John, this looks really close to the end of the line. I mean, this is what John sees. This is his present physical experience. He's exiled. He's defeated. And then we're told he is in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And all that means is he was worshiping. He was, as best as he could, as faithfully as he knew how, he's there by himself Worshiping God in exile. I hate to say this, but the whole thing seems kind of pathetic, doesn't it? An old man, he's alone, nobody with him. He's worshiping a God who allowed him to be exiled, whose apostles by this point have all been killed, and whose followers appear to be on the verge of extinction. That's the appearance of things. It is. It doesn't look good. One 90-year-old man. But that's not what's really happening. Because what happens next? He's taken up in the Spirit. John hears a voice behind him like a trumpet. And when he turns around, he's no longer there on the island of Patmos. But he's in the heavenly places, 
In fact, he's in the very temple of the Lord God and he sees him, but not with his eyes. And he, he hears him, but not with his ears. He is in direct spiritual contact with the Lord Jesus Christ and the angel he has sent. And so you, you, you see the incredible picture here. Here's John sitting on a rock in exile, weak at the low point. The church is in, uh, looks like it's in almost tatters. And yet his spirit is in the most exalted place in all of the universe. He's in the throne room of God. If you're a Christian, listen, that's you. Whatever's around you, Whatever your, your physical circumstances, whether the future looks good or it looks bad, your citizenship is in heaven just like John. Now, if all he had was what he could see, well, that would be depressing. He wouldn't have any reason to rejoice. He wouldn't have any reason to worship. He would be of all men most to be pitied. But there's more going on here than John can see. Right? There's more than meets the eye. There is a spiritual reality that even though it is invisible to John, is more real than the island of his exile. It's a little bit like Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings 6. You know the story, right? Syrian, uh, Syria is at war with Israel, and the king of Syria, he is furious because Elisha is always telling the Israelites what his battle plans are, and they come and they thwart them. And so king of Syria says, well, I'll deal with this. And he sends a massive army to surround the city where Elisha is staying. So Elisha's servant gets up in the morning, goes outside, sees this massive army, and he's terrified. And so Elisha tells him, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, of course, what's obvious is that there are only two of them and hundreds, if not thousands, of enemies. It does not look like there are more with Elisha and his servant. And so Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes. Let him see reality. And God answers, and the servant does see. And what he sees on the mountains surrounding the Syrians is a far greater army of horsemen and chariots of fire. And even though it looked very grim for Elisha, the ones who really were in trouble were the Syrians. This is very often the Christian experience, isn't it? There is a spiritual reality happening that you can't see, but if you got a glimpse of it, you would never be afraid again. It's true for John. It's true for all of us. And that's... That's one of the realities constantly being revealed over and over again in this book. It reminds us that things are not always what they appear. Not in history and not in our own lives. There's always more happening than what you can see. There are forces at work in powerful ways that you can't detect with your eyes or any of your senses. But Revelation makes them clear. And this book takes things that look weak, and shows them as they really are. And it takes things that look really powerful and invincible and exposes them as weak. I mean, just, just think for a moment, we'll get ahead of ourselves, but think of the great city 
in chapter 17. It's a city that rules over all the kings of the earth. It's the center of political power. And what it's doing is it is oppressing and opposing God and His people. It's a giant city. And if you saw it, if you could see it, what would you, you'd be awestruck. You know, I remember when I was in Washington, D.C. I went into the, into the city for the first time I went there. And you just look around and it's, it's impressive. There are tall, grand buildings, uh, tall, made of, made of all kinds of marble. There are motorcades of important people going down the streets. There's uh, military marches happening. You, you, see, you see guards everywhere. It's, it's impressive. And you see it and you think, man, if this was against the church, what could the church possibly do? It almost looks invincible. But you know what it doesn't look like? It doesn't look like a loose woman riding around on a terrible beast. It doesn't look like a decadent harlot, disgusting and doomed to destruction. That's not what it looks like. And yet the book of Revelation tells us, yeah, but that's exactly what it is. That city's true identity is displayed beyond what the naked eye can see. And we're, we're shown with this graphic picture of a, of a woman, gaudy, riding a beast. This is what God thinks when He sees the city. And this is, the, this is what's going to happen to it. And so we don't look at what we see. We don't trust in what we see. And we don't look at what's been seen. But we look at what's been said. And we trust Him. And what an encouragement it is to know that those who are with us are always more and greater. Right? What encouragement to know that for all of our enemies, the end is sure and that Christ has conquered them all. Right? Nothing formed against us shall stand. And even if we don't see it like John sees it or like Elisha saw it, we can believe it by faith. We are here in body, but our spirit and our life is hid with Christ on high. And so when John turns around, he sees Christ. And He's there with Him. And there with Christ are the seven churches. It's a picture of the presence of the church in the heavenly places. It's a picture of the churches, God's people there with Him in His midst. And that's us. You know, there is a sense where we are already there with Christ. Ephesians 2.6 God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Present tense. And so heaven only isn't only somewhere that you're going. But because you're in Christ there is a very real sense that you are there with Him right now in Him. And whatever you see here on earth however poor the condition of the church however far off the Lord appears it's just that. It's an appearance, one that we overcome by faith, believing God when He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We have faith in the Word and the person of Christ. And in verses 13 through 16, we see Him. Now, you may not know this, but this passage is actually one of the longest and fullest descriptions of Jesus in the Bible. It's a symbolic description, but it's a description to be sure. Uh, maybe you've never noticed before how little we're actually told about how Jesus looks in Scripture. 
I think everybody has a mental image. Everybody, if they were a good artist and they could draw what's in their mind, could probably draw a picture, whether they should or not. I don't know. But everybody probably has an image in their mind of what Jesus looks like. But what's that based on? Probably things you've seen in books or in pictures. But the Bible actually says very little about his appearance. Presumably, he had a beard. We know that because in Matthew it says it was pulled out. He was a man. Probably the one other place in Scripture where Jesus is described is Isaiah 53. And all that tells us is that he was unimpressive. Right? No form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Right? He wouldn't stand out in a crowd. He wasn't tall. He wasn't handsome. Right? He wasn't muscular. He was average. That's what Jesus looked like. It's nothing spectacular. That's how John knew him when he walked with him. That's how Jesus looked his whole 33 years here on earth. But this description this is far from average. Jesus looks nothing like John remembered him. He's displayed in his glory. And what's happening here is not so much a description of what Jesus looks like, but a description of what Jesus is like. And it's again another example of this, this rather mundane, physical reality giving way to a glorious, spiritual one. If you could see Jesus on earth, average Joe. If you see him in heaven, it's what's just described. And it is a spiritual description. You, you can't take this description literally. It's, it's figurative. You can't have both eyes uh, like fire and a face that shines like the sun. You know, you could go home and try and draw, but I, I don't think you could get it accurately. It's something you couldn't even look at. But these symbols are displaying Christ and teaching us about Christ. And they come in the opening of the book. And, and we'll see similar pictures of Christ again and again. Because God is reminding His, His beleaguered, feeble church that He is strong and He is able. And because, right, remember the, the theme of the book, because Christ is glorious, because Christ is exalted, His church can overcome without fear. And so I just want you to put yourself in the position of, of maybe one of those early Christians. You're facing the greatest empire that the world has to this point known. And quickly, it's turning against you. Evil is flourishing in the land, and all of your leaders in the church are killed or in exile. You might have a reason to be anxious. You might have a reason to be fearful. Right? It would be a scary prospect knowing and seeing that the church is like a lamb surrounded by wolves ready to devour. And you're wondering, well, with the apostles gone, right, with the leaders imperiled, who's going to defend the church? Who's going to come and rescue? And you're going to be afraid. I bet most believers at that time were afraid. And that's not because I know the past. It's just what people in the church are always like. When things start to get uh, difficult, for the most part, we respond instinctively with fear. This is why we're told in the Bible so many times, fear not. In fact, in verse 17, when Jesus tells John, fear not, I don't think he's just saying not to be afraid of him, but not to be afraid of anything. Because Jesus is Lord, because of who he is, we don't have to be afraid. You know, 
Amy taught this passage in Sunday school a few months ago. And I'd been, been studying it for some time, and, and so I offered to help, and I, and I wrote down the main point of just these verses. And the point is that even though the world around John and around the church was frightening and filled with uncertainty and with powerful people and with forces who wanted the church to be crushed, Jesus didn't want John to be afraid. He doesn't want his people to be fearful. And, and you almost have a hint here of, of Matthew 10, where it says... Don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear God who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. And so this whole description here is meant to drive out fear. Now for one, Jesus is right there in the midst of his people. Jesus is with us. And for the one about to be described to be with you and for you, well then you can start to see why pity for your enemies is more appropriate than fear. Right? If you, you, have you ever been out somewhere and uh, and you've got a guy who's, who's giving you some trouble, maybe a bully, maybe you're thinking when you're younger, and he's just giving you a hard time, and you go up, you're going to avoid him, you're going to be afraid of him, you're going to be around him, but if you have a bigger brother or somebody else with you, and they're standing there alongside of you, and the person comes along. You're not going to be as afraid, are you? You're going to have a lot more confidence. Jesus is here with his people. He tells us this because he doesn't want us to be afraid. So verse 13, listen to the description. He has a robe and a golden sash. Have you ever seen pictures of kings, older kings, maybe from the 1800s, uh, and they're all decorated up, they're dressed in the best. You know, we, we still do that today. If someone is important, they'll wear a suit. If they're really important, they'll wear a really nice three-piece suit. And if they're more important than that, well, they have sashes and medals and hats and, and other regalia. Maybe some of you watched the, uh, the Queen's funeral and you saw some of the incredible uh, clothing that some of the people who were there had. Well, in the time of Christ, those who were the most important had the longest, most extravagant robes. The longer your robe the more authority you had. So if all of the kings got together, you know who get the best seat? The one with the longest robe. And what's being symbolized here is not just that Jesus is wearing a robe, but that his robe is immense. You know, I'm sure it's, it's bursting the bounds of the vision itself, just like in Isaiah chapter 6 in the temple where Jesus is seen by Isaiah and his robe fills the entire building and overflows into everything. Well, what's being communicated here isn't the fashion of Christ, but the authority of Christ. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Almighty who everyone ought to listen to. I mean, if you were to go somewhere and you saw someone with a sash and a robe and medals all on, they're dressed like a king, and they told you, do this, you'd probably do it, wouldn't you? The dress expresses the authority. And even though many today are told to heed the voice of Christ, they don't. But when he comes back, they will. They'll see him as he is. And if the king to whom every king and individual high and low is accountable to, if he is with you and you are with him, then what king or ruler in the world do you have to be afraid of? None. In verse 14, his hair is white. 
It's not a symbol of purity or of age. It's a symbol of wisdom. It's a connection with Daniel 7 as well. And the Son of Man who comes to judge the earth, well, why is his hair white? Well, the Bible teaches that nobody is born wise. It teaches that everyone is born a fool and needs to learn wisdom. Maybe there's a message to, uh, to all of the young people here. If you want to be wise, the first thing you have to realize is that you're a fool. You're not wise. Sorry. <laughs> Proverbs says you learn wisdom, but folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Everyone is born a fool and needs to, word it, uh, needs to learn it. And hopefully, hopefully, as you grow older, you study the Word or taught by your parents, uh, listening to the sermons, as time goes on, you become wiser. And something else happens as you grow older. You turn grayer. And then from gray to white. And a person who is white-haired is hopefully the wisest. Well, for Christ to have white hair, and then the repetition of it, to emphasize it, right? His hair is white, white as wool, white as snow. It's to remind us that He is supremely wise. He's the wisest of the wise. Which is encouraging to us because it means whenever it comes to judgment, He's always going to make the right decision. You know what the display of the wisdom of Solomon was? His justice. This helps God's people persevere. It means that Jesus always knows what the right course of action is. He always knows what's necessary. He always knows what is just. You know, I think one of the challenges that we struggle with more than probably any other in a fallen world as fallen human beings is knowing what the right thing to do is when it isn't clear. Right? We lose sleep over it. Like, what should we do? We grind our brains how we can fix a problem or, or what the right course of action is or, or what the best decision we should make would be and we just don't know and we wish that we did. Well, when it comes to pressure on the church, it's especially pointed. I mean, many, many things are coming up in our day and age uh, that the church didn't have to wrestle with as much in the past and we wonder, how should a Christian respond when there's not a verse? The encouraging part here is Jesus always knows the answer to that question. He doesn't even have to think about it. He knows immediately and always what to do. And because He is the one guiding history, He never makes a mistake. He never gets it wrong. He always does what is right. And even if you don't see it, you can believe it by faith and go to Him in prayer and not be afraid of the future. Christ always knows. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, pray. Why? Pray to Christ. Pray to God who always knows. And we can go to Him to guide our paths. Next, His eyes are like fire. Now this isn't the color of His eyes. It means His eyes are always illumined. He's always seeing. Nothing is ever hidden from Him. It's one of the reasons why he's all-wise, because he's all-knowing. You say, well, how does the symbol fit? Well, in the ancient world, you didn't have flashlights. You had lamps. And there at the end of the lamp is a fire. And the fire on that lamp would allow you to see in the dark. The picture here is 
uh, to, to put it in, in modern terms, his eyes were like spotlights, seeing all things as if it was broad daylight. This is really helpful, really encouraging for the church, guys. Because it means it doesn't matter how hidden away a motive of some ruler's mind is. It doesn't matter how spiritually dark things are. It doesn't matter how well a deception is pulled off or how able a person is to manipulate and deceive. Christ always sees through it. And He sees through it immediately. This is comforting and terrifying. It's terrifying because it means even if a person can deceive the elders of their church, their church, their family, and even themselves about their life, their walk, their love for God, the one person they can't deceive is Christ. This is going to become apparent when we get to the seven churches. But here it's primarily meant to comfort. And, and it is. I mean, imagine. Imagine you were on trial. And those who took you to court, they were lying. And they're telling half-truths, and they're, they're twisting things. Maybe you've been like, you know, in a situation like this before, where someone was dishonest about something that happened, or they were dishonest about you, and, uh, and they were really good at it. And they sounded really believable. And people believed them. Just, it just leaves you feeling helpless, doesn't it? You know what they're saying isn't true. You know they're lying, but they're lying so convincingly, you don't stand a chance. Well, what a relief it is to know that nobody ever deceives Christ. Nobody ever twists things and gets away with it. Nobody ever lies to Him or manipulates Him or anything of the sort, and He doesn't see right through it immediately. It is impossible to deceive Him because He is the truth. And he knows the truth. And his eyes see through every falsity and deception and lie of man and Satan. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees it all and he never is deceived. Nothing is hidden. Ever. Even darkness is light before him. And one day every lie will crumble and truth will be exalted in justice. So don't be intimidated. Okay? Press on for truth. Be like the important widow crying out day and night for justice. It goes on to say his feet are like brass. He will trample his enemies. His voice is like many waters. It, it comes like a torrent, like a flood. His, his voice itself is terrifying. You know, in the Psalms, in Psalm 2... All the kings of the world have gathered and arrayed themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed. And God speaks to them in His wrath and terrifies them in His fury. And what I always thought strange about that passage is that He doesn't say anything particularly frightening. Right? He doesn't warn them, not in the first part, or, or threaten them. He just dismisses them. He says, as for me, I have established my king on Zion, my holy hill. And that's it. And I, I was puzzled. How is that speaking to them in, in, in his fury? Well, then I realized they weren't trembling at what God said. God didn't have to say something threatening to make them tremble. God just had to speak. And they're trembling at the power of his voice. It's like a, a crashing flood coming directly at you or, or a million men all shouting in unison. 
It gives the picture of a great warrior and of a great army against whom nothing can stand. And if the picture of a warrior wasn't enough, uh, wasn't clear enough, next he, he draws a sword from his mouth. And in the Bible, the, the double-edged sword you know, is two things. One, it's the Word of God. And two, it's used to divide in judgment, which really are the same thing because people will be judged according to the Word. And so you have a picture of the Lord mighty, wise, powerful, willing to come to the defense of His people, and, and a Lord with a, a far greater ability than all of the legions of Rome. And He's coming to separate the righteous from the ungodly with justice. And then I love this next picture. His face shines like the sun. You know, almost, almost every child is afraid of the dark. And some adults still are. Right? If you have a match, it helps. If you have a flashlight, it makes things a little better. But if it's daytime, you're not afraid at all. And there are a number of comparisons you can draw here between Christ and the Son. I mean, what, what does the Son do? It gives light to all of the world. What does the Son do? It gives life to all of the world. There'd be no life on the world if it wasn't for the Son. And yet, if you looked at the Son, what would it do? It would cause you to go blind. In the same way, Christ gives light and life to all in the world, but is so, so glorious that if you were to look directly at Him, it would blind you. But here... Here, I think the point is that light extinguishes darkness instantly and effortlessly. It's like when you turn on a light switch in a room. What happens? Darkness disappears. It cannot stand in the presence of light. It retreats immediately with no resistance. Darkness in every instance is swiftly and irresistibly overcome by the... It can't fight back. It can't. It only flees. God created it to be this way, to teach us about Himself. And this is seen throughout the book of Revelation. Christ defeats the powers of darkness instantly and effortlessly. Right? One of the things that's interesting is there are battles in this book. And all of the armies are gathered together, but you know what? It never actually describes a battle. It just says, all of the armies gather together, and the Lord destroyed them and fed their bodies to the birds. The armies of the world are dispelled by Christ as efficiently and irresistibly as light drives out darkness. How long does it take when you turn the lights on in this room for the room to be illumined? It happens like this. In the same way, all of the powers of darkness arrayed against God and His people, when God so decides, they are, dis they are dispelled instantly. All the darkness... All the evil, all the sin, all the deception, when Christ shows up, it's going to have nowhere to hide. It will be vanquished entirely and forever. It simply cannot exist in the brightness and righteousness of Christ. And this is the one who fights for His church. And no matter how much darkness enroaches, Christ, the light of the world, is always near. And so you don't have to be afraid. All he has to do is stretch out his hand and all of the armies of Pharaoh and the Egyptians are crushed in the sea. That's the picture of Jesus in the opening of the book of Revelation. And because of who he is, his people do not need to be afraid. They don't need to fear about being lied about. They don't need to fear the darkness in the world. They don't, they don't need to fear their enemies. Really, the only thing they need to fear is him. 
He is the one who can destroy the body and cast the soul into hell. And He is the one who can deliver His people. Now, the last verses, verses 17 through 20, quickly, they remind us of this. Jesus is the one who holds our lives in His hands. Now, he does it two ways, but there's one point. Jesus is in control of your life and your destiny and everybody else and their destinies. It's similar to Job 12.10. In His hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. They are in His hands. Everything. Your life is in His hands. Everyone's life is in His hands. He owns it. And even though it can be taken from you, it cannot be taken from him. And so he tells John, listen to this. He says, I have the keys of death and hell. I have them, Jesus says. It's not Peter, not anymore. And it certainly isn't that old bachelor in Rome. Christ holds the keys to death and hell. And no one who dies and perishes goes without him opening the door. Not one life in this world ends, not even a sparrow's, until its appointed time. And, and Jesus isn't telling us anything new here. He is reminding us that we are secure in Him. He is reminding us that those who trust in Him, even though they die, yet shall they live. What an encouraging word to a church that it really looks like they're about to be uh, going to be fed to the lions or killed for not worshiping emperor. And what does Jesus say? He says, you're following in my footsteps. And I was crucified, but look, I am alive forevermore. Jesus died and behold, He is alive forevermore, just like His people will be. And so Christian, you don't need to fear, not even death. The Mighty One, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, He loves you. He gave Himself for you. Nothing can pluck you out of His hands. And when your time comes to die, as it will for all of us in this room, it isn't the end. Not for the believer. It is the moment Christ has appointed for you to go and be with Him. It is when He calls you to come and see now what no eye has seen or ear has heard. And it will be the moment when all that you have hoped for and looked for by faith becomes a reality. Death, slander, persecution, injustice, all of it is put to rest in Him. The message in the opening of this book to the church, if you were to summarize it in eight words, we need not fear for God is near. We need not fear, for Christ is near. And He is. And if you find yourself trembling and fearful of what the future might hold, go back and reread the description of Christ and remind yourself of who He is. Nothing can overcome Him. And nothing can overcome those whom He holds in His hands. If you are in Christ, you are secure and you are safe. Let's pray. Lord, thank You. Thank You that You hold us. Thank You that we don't need to be afraid. 
Thank you that nothing can pluck us out of your hand. Thank you that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, who, who can pry open your fingers and take us out? Nothing. No power of hell, no scheme of man. We are secure in you. And I pray, Lord, as your people look ahead and many of them are anxious and may be afraid, Lord, there may be difficult things coming. I don't know. You know. But I want your people to be prepared if they do. And you want your people to be ready if they do. And I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us so that we would draw near to your Son, Jesus Christ, and in Him, and, and in meditating on His glorious victory, His assured triumph, that we would be steadfast, immovable, and constant in this world. We do not have anything to be afraid of because, Lord, You are with us. Help Your people to see spiritual realities that are greater than what their circumstances would suggest. And I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in your people as your people are not anxious or afraid, but instead are trusting in you and what you have revealed to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.